if you are here this morning, you realize I've, I've dressed down a bit. I was supposed to wear business casual, so I had slacks and a sport coat, but I don't have an overcoat, and I got so cold. I just, I, I had to go with jeans and a sweater to go under the coat, so I don't mean to disrespect you, but I was just too cold to keep walking around in that. I, this is a cold of which I am not familiar, to use a formal language, and I was telling George this, he said, Gary, wait till you get to Edmonton. I'm heading out for the Breakforth Conference at the end of this week, so um, I guess this is a middle step. When you come from Houston, though, it was uh, like 22 degrees centigrade today in Houston, and uh, not quite that now here. When I was uh, a student at Regent College in seminary, a professor that had a big impact on me mentioned in one of his lectures a verse that sort of became a life verse for me. It became the first verse that I put in the first book I wrote, Seeking the Face of God, which has now been released as Thirsting for God. Uh, it's, it's been a key element behind Sacred Pathways, which I'm speaking on tonight and others. I, I since learned, because this professor really spoke on spirituality more than biblical exegesis, the verse is kind of ripped out of context and probably doesn't say what we're implying it says here. But it's such a good verse, and it says it in right, the right way, uh, that I'm presenting it here. It's Jeremiah 30.21, where it says, Who is he who will devote himself to be close to me? Declares the Lord. Who is he who will devote himself to be close to me? There's another verse in Scripture that's somewhat similar to that. Second Chronicles 16.9 says this, For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to Him. What I think both of these verses suggest, it's an amazing picture. God is literally looking over the earth, saying, where is the man, where is the woman who will make it their aim out of all the things they could pursue in this life, uh, academic excellence, uh, business success, political power, uh, athletic skill, all of those things, many of which are very noble pursuits, but in the midst of that, who will set aside their life to say, the one thing I want to do more than anything is that when I die, I will have devoted myself, not, not as a hobby, but I've devoted myself, given myself over to being close to the God who created me. It's an amazing invitation to me. That what better use of our life than to say, I want to spend the next year becoming closer to the Lord than I am today. And the year after that and the next decade, so that 10 years from now, I'm 10 years in one sense closer in experience to the Lord than I would be this day. I, I see it as an incredible invitation, and yet it, it frustrates me, writing on spiritual formation for most of my adult life, that we take this amazing invitation that the God who knows us most and loves us most is actually looking for people willing to be in that intimate of a relationship with Him. I mean, it's an amazing invitation when you think about it, and yet we've turned it into an obligation. When we're going up through college, one of the most popular questions for small group leaders is, have you had your quiet time today? It's like an amazing opportunity to get close to the Lord, and we make it a religious obligation. Have you done it? And that really set me on the, on the path of Sacred Pathways asking, how do we turn this amazing opportunity into a burden? How did that happen in spiritual formation? And, and one thing I'm just accepting as a premise, I can't believe it's the who. 
I don't think it's a burden to know God. He knows us like no one else knows us. He loves us. He affirms us. He relates to us as we need someone to relate to us. It can't be the who. We were designed to be in a relationship with Him, which led me to believe if it's not the who, it must be the how. There must be something in the how of what we're telling people, how you relate to the Lord that has made it an obligation. I think what we've done is we've created sort of a one-size-fits-all spiritual. We know it's healthy for us to be cultivating a relationship with God. So we developed, and I think with good intentions, this one quiet time. And we wanted to be able to teach it. And so we had to keep cutting it down to its most generic form about when to have a quiet time and how to have a quiet time and what to do in that quiet time. And the problem is, one-size-fits-all spirituality doesn't work any more than one-size-fits-all shirt or hat or pants would work in this room. We're not the same. God didn't create us the same. And because it's such a compelling invitation, I really wanted to begin spending some time studying the how so that it wouldn't become a burden. Because when we think about the who, it really is overwhelming. Uh, When I was, uh, before my own books could feed my family, I worked on a lot of books with Christian celebrities helping them put theirs together. One was with Franklin Graham, of course the son of Billy Graham, although in his own right now he was head of Samaritan's Purse and now is heading up the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. And as we were making progress, I heard him talking to his assistant. You know, we were hoping to get a little bit further than we did today, and I'm having dinner with my parents tonight. Franklin's actually a pilot. Uh, and so he was going to fly out. He was in... Um, one part of North Carolina, and he's going to fly out to where his parents were. He goes, I just have parents with my mom, or dinner with my mom and dad tonight. I was thinking, why don't I take Gary with me? We could work on this plane while we fly out to my parents' house, and then we can have dinner with my parents, and then we'll fly back, and we'll get this thing done. And, and I'm overhearing this thinking to myself, I'm going to have a private dinner with Franklin Graham, Billy Graham, and Ruth Graham. I mean, how cool is that? I mean, that... You don't know all that's going to be written about Christian history in the 20th century. You've got to think Billy Graham's at least a section in a chapter. I mean, he had a huge impact on evangelicalism. And is at a point in his life where not very many people could meet him because of his advancing age, the health issues he was facing, because it's so hard for people to... I mean, everybody wants their time with him when he comes into town. The mayor wants to meet with him. The Christian bookstore owners, the leading pastors, they don't want to offend people. So what Franklin explained is they really just don't let too many people meet with him because he's... He still was intent up until more recently when he could preach to preserve his strength for preaching. And so a private dinner with just the three of them, I I thought would be amazing. The the problem I had is that I had reservations to leave the next day. And you all know what it's like with the airlines. They're happy to fly you from point A to point B for $400. And if you need to change it by a day or two, they'll accommodate you for about $1,500. And when they have you over a barrel like that, they'll really stick you. I also had some appointments I had made with other people because I expected to be home a day earlier. But, but I felt like I could go to any of my friends and say, you know what, it was you or Billy Graham. I went with Billy. I mean, I, I felt like most of them would probably understand. Now, as it went on, as we worked, we found out that um, we got enough done that day that I didn't actually get to fly out with Franklin to meet and have dinner with the Grahams. I look back and wish I would have drugged my feet a little bit, but... What what amazed me when I was traveling back to where I was living at the time, I I was convicted. The Lord took that time as I was traveling just to challenge me that I didn't care how much it cost to meet with Billy Graham. I would have taken out the credit card and said, just 
I'll pay it. I, I, I want to stay. It's worth it. I didn't care who I would have to offend to meet with Billy Graham. If I told somebody, look, somebody else had precedence, it wouldn't have bothered me at all. I, I was willing to do it because I thought the chance of meeting with a who like that was so great. It really didn't matter who I offended. And yet every day, one so much more brilliant than Billy Graham that you, you couldn't even put him on a scale, whose light is so tremendous that Billy Graham would be all but invisible in the midst of his glory. Every day, one just like that has to look over the earth and say, is there a man, is there a woman who will take some of their time, some of their life, and devote themselves to being close to me? And again, that led me to the, it, it can't be the who, it has to be the why. And so I began to look at just, I, I, I got to confess, in, in, in college I was the most narrow-minded, ruthless discipler you could find. I, I hope God has given those men grace that they were not harmed immeasurably uh, because I was so confident about how to have a quiet time, even when to have a quiet time. I, I, you know, Jesus got up early. That God is a busy God. If, if you're not there with Him by 7 a.m., He's off running Russia or solving a conflict in China or something. I mean, I knew exactly how to do it and I could be merciless at holding people accountable. If they'd missed three days in a row, I'm like, well, maybe we're not discipling. Maybe I need to read the, the four spiritual laws so that you actually become a Christian. I mean, it just... But it was like God was smiling because through my life experiences, He really began to drive a wedge between that narrow view I had of how people were to relate to the Lord, in many ways, I feel like I'm the most unlikely author of sacred pathways you could find. It began when I fell in love with a wonderful young woman named Lisa, who eventually became my wife. And, and I, I loved her. I knew God was so active in her life because he, I, I wouldn't have been as attracted to her if, if he wasn't. And yet we were so different in, in so many ways. Uh, the way we looked at food. I, I was a consummate junk food junkie in college. Captain Crunch, Big Macs, pizza, and ice cream were sort of my four food groups. Uh, Lisa grew up in a family, ate 100% whole wheat bread and, you know, things that grow, stuff like that is what she uh, preferred to eat. So uh, we were different in so many ways, and it shouldn't surprise me that we related to God so differently. I, I was ruthless about having an early morning quiet time. I'd usually be up by 5.30, 6 a.m. having that quiet time. Lisa was never awake at 5.30 or 6. She might be walking around, but she really doesn't mentally engage until about 9 a.m. After she's had her cup of coffee, she's ready to go. She's much more of a night owl than I was. And so what she would do in college is that she would just roll out of bed in time to get to her first class. She would go through classes, have lunch, then come back to the dorm, go up onto the roof with her Bible, her, her intercessory notebook and all that, and then she would sit on the roof and in the sun and call that a quiet time. And I so thought that was cheating. You know, the way you kind of flirt, fight in, in college. Said, Come on, Lisa, who goes up onto the roof in the afternoon, is in the sun, and, and calls that a quiet time? Well, Lisa really couldn't respond, but two weeks later, and I, I promise I did not make this up. I couldn't have made this up. Two weeks later, I hear this knock on my dorm room door. I open it up. Lisa marches in. She's smiling. She opens up her Bible to Acts Chapter 10, verse 9, it says this. <laughs> About noon the following day, Peter, the rock upon whom Jesus built a church, went up on the roof to pray. I remember thinking, what, what are the odds of that? 
And then I had kids, and God used that wedge to open it up a little bit further because I realized how my kids were so differently. If you have more than one kid, you realize they just come out so differently. My youngest daughter, if you were here this morning, you heard she's the one that was the, the, the little chatterbox a little bit uh, that left the message. She's very relational, very talkative. One of her favorite things to do with me when she was growing up was to go to the International House of Pancakes. Um, she liked it because Lisa and I had such different eating styles. At IHOP, they have what they call funny face pancakes. They're chocolate chip pancakes with whipped cream smiles and whatnot. She never wanted to go there with Lisa because she knows Lisa would never let her have that for breakfast. Lisa would say, honey, that's not really food. That's a dessert. Maybe we'll split one after we're all done. But, and, and, but you know, she could do that with me, so she loved to do that. Uh, my son Graham was very competitive. We'd play sports together. We would watch sports together. Uh, when I took Ian, his buddy, to Disneyland for his 12th birthday, uh, everything was a competition. I can get to the elevator before you can. I can get to the men's room before you. I mean, it was just everything you could imagine was a competition. That's just sort of how he was. Uh, my oldest daughter, Allison, is the least competitive person I've ever known. She never wanted to play sports. She's poetic. She likes to talk about relationships. She likes those movies, react, reacting to things like that. And, and here's the thing. As I related to each one of them growing up, I really enjoyed the fact that I have a very different relationship with each one of my children. I like that I don't relate to them the same way. We don't do the same things. We don't talk about the same things. And you know what? Nothing would hurt me more than if my introverted daughter, Allison, felt like she had to become like my extroverted daughter, Kelsey, for me to enjoy spending time with her. Or, or that my competitive Graham felt like he had to become like more the just relational talker, Allison, for me to enjoy him and to want to spend time with him. I like the fact that I relate to them differently. Now, I relate to kids whose personality, in large part, was given to them by their creator. So how much more would our Heavenly Father-in-law delight in the fact that He relates to us so differently because He gave us those different personalities? I received my kids' personalities. God created those personalities. And it began to dawn on me that, you know what? that one of the best ways I can worship God is to lean into who He made me to be, to learn to love Him that way. That is a statement of Him as my Creator. That's a form of my worship. Now, of course, we, we never want to draw our theology from personal experience like that, so I had to put it to Scripture. And, and I looked at this traditional quiet time that I had experienced and had trained others in, and it's not there. It's not that it's unhelpful. It's not that it's unbiblical. It just it doesn't explain the vast array of experience that people had as they related to God in Scripture. You just go back and you see uh, so many different people. Abraham, in, in the book of Genesis, related to God. Whenever he would meet with God, he would build an altar. All throughout Genesis, Abraham met with God, built an altar. Went somewhere else, met with God, he built an altar. He just... He just liked building an altar. You don't see anybody else doing that. You don't see it being commanded. It's just sort of Abraham's thing. That's what he did. You go forward a couple generations, you've got David. He was God's warrior. Uh, he would conquer God's enemies. That's one of the major ways that God used him. And that's how he reached his fame and part of his obedience to God. And then later in his life, when he decides he wants to build a temple, so now it's not a warfare, but sort of a religious rite that he's looking at, God specifically comes to David and says, David, I don't want you to build my temple. You are my warrior. 
Nothing wrong with being a warrior. I needed you to be a warrior at this point in Israel's history. But your son Solomon is the one to build my temple. And and as I read that, it struck me that here is God telling a father, your son will serve me and worship me in a very different way than you worshipped and served me. And I realized I couldn't try to 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 press upon others the way I had related to God, that in Scripture God is specifically telling a father, no, you and your son are going to be very different in how you relate to me. And so when Solomon wanted to please God, and he pleased God so greatly that God came to him and said, ask me anything you want, I'll give you. What did Solomon do? Did he kill a thousand Philistines? No, he had a thousand burnt offerings. That's how he did it. It was very pleasing to God. And then you go to the New Testament and you have Mary sitting at Jesus' feet, just soaking in His presence, learning from Him, uh, hearing His teaching. Nowhere do you see Jesus looking down on Mary with disdain, saying, you know, Mary, it's kind of creeping me out the way you're just sitting in front of me. If you really love me, why don't you want to go out and build one of those altars like Abraham did? I mean, I thought those were really creative. Or... You know, why don't you show your courage like David and go attack Israel's enemies or at least offer a couple burnt offerings? I mean, Solomon gave me a thousand. You're you're just sitting here. It's comical. We could not even imagine Jesus doing that because the truth is throughout Scripture, different people worship the same God in very different ways. And yet when we try to translate that dynamic experience into modern culture, Uh, we tend to think that everyone is going to have sort of a reasonably similar quiet time. Just because we know getting the Word is essential, praying is essential, and worship is essential, we think that the way we worship, the way we interact with Scripture, the way we pray has to be the same. But you know what's interesting? We usually only do it within North American culture. We would never expect uh, somebody from the Congo or somebody necessarily even from Russia to worship like the Baptists in Georgia, or the Episcopalians in Boston, or the Mennonites in Vancouver. But when we get into our own culture, we think that a 45-year-old plumber can receive the same basic training for a quiet time as a 12-year-old girl who dots her eye with a little flower uh, when she signs her name. And the reality is God just hasn't made us that way. And here's what we do. We, We carry a lot of guilt as believers because we don't relate to God the way that others do, and we always tend to think others relate to God in a better way. Bill Hybels taught at one of his pastor's conferences out of Sacred Pathways some years ago, and he told the story of how one pastor came up to him who was just crestfallen and under deep conviction. He decided he was going to go away for the weekend, have a prayer and fasting retreat, and pray for his church. So he went to this out-of-way place with no television No distractions. He could just spend his time in prayer before the Lord. He got there on a Friday evening. He put himself down. He was so eager to pray, and he poured out his heart to God. He thought it was probably midnight by the time he got done. He looked at his watch, and about 30 minutes had passed. He started to get a little concerned, so he decided he's going to pray for his staff and the ministries of the church. Another 20 minutes is gone. He prays for his family. He prays for his community. About two and a half hours later, he's, he's prayed out and he, he can't stand to be there anymore and he slinks home in a spirit of defeat. And he goes up to Bill saying, how can I be a pastor teaching a congregation to pray when I can't even go for a whole weekend by myself? 
And, and Bill, knowing this pastor, knowing he's a pretty relational guy, said to him, well, have you ever thought of bringing some buddies along with you? And the pastor looked at him like, is that legal? Is that allowed? And here's the thing. Does God really care whether you pray better taking a walk in the woods beside a river or whether you like to get into a cathedral or you want to get into a room where there's no distraction or just that you pray? Does he really care whether somebody enjoys their individual Bible study with their concordances and their commentaries and their word studies or whether somebody really does it better if they're in a group, if they're going through a K. Arthur study or something like that, or just that the Word is a regular part of their life? Does he really care if somebody likes to worship with an instrument in their hand, going through Scripture, writing their own songs, or just that they're regular adorers of God? There's just a vast variety of experience, and if guilt alone would work as someone who's worked in spiritual direction, I wouldn't have a problem prescribing it. My, my problem is I've just never seen it work. I've never really seen it help somebody reconnect with God. Which is why what I really wanted to do with Sacred Pathways was unleash the power of desire. At, at that point in the church's history, we're talking early 90s, I felt like mostly when we were talking about quiet times, we were talking about another D called discipline. You've got to be faithful. You've got to be disciplined. We've got to hold each other accountable. And... and it's not that I'm anti-discipline. I agree with Bonhoeffer. If we're not into discipline, we're not going to go very far into Christ. We need discipline. But here's what I found. If you can tap the power of desire, you can accomplish more than discipline can. If we're talking about being devoted to being close to the Lord, I, I don't like this about myself, but it's true, and I bet it's true about you. If you really want to be devoted to something, you, you probably have to like it. It's hard for us to make ourselves do something we don't really desire to do. We can make ourselves, if we have to, in certain contexts. But to really grow, to really flourish, eventually we have to desire it. We all know this from things like exercise. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of weird the way I'm wired. I enjoy running. I've enjoyed long-distance running. I, I realize that running is the punishment for most other sports, right? You make a mistake and you have to go run laps. That was my favorite part of practices. And so I just became a distance runner. That, that was more. And, and I know people think it's crazy. But I also know now, that just past 50, every study I've seen says if you really want to be healthy at this age, you've really got to start doing some weightlifting. And I have tried more times than I can tell you to try to get onto a weightlifting routine. And I just do it because I know it's the right thing to do, but I don't enjoy it. And it is so hard for me. And I can't tell you how many times I've started and stopped. And I think the same principle is often true for quiet times. If people see it only as an obligation, they'll start and then they'll stop. On January 1, I'm going to be more faithful with my quiet times. In February, they're going to realize, well, that didn't work out so well. They wait till the next year and they're going to try to do another resolution and go over it again. But if we can marshal the power of desire so that people look up and feel like they can't wait till they get to their quiet time. That if they don't get to their quiet time, they feel like they've missed a good friend. They feel like they've lost something. Then I think we can create a church that will devote itself to being close to the Lord. And to create desire, we have to recognize that a quiet time has to be tailored personally to the way that God made us. Which is why that's where the pathways come out. I've identified nine pathways. The book first came out 
1996. I really haven't seen anybody add a pathway that wasn't somewhere connected. Bill Hybels likes to talk about the relational pathway. Uh, I, I folded that into the enthusiast. Uh, I'll explain why in a little bit. But these aren't to put you from the quiet time box into another sacred pathways box. I think most people resemble a few of these. I think we can be blends. I think we go through different pathways in our time. Frankly, I think the longer you've walked with the Lord, the more often, uh, the more likely you are to have more pathways. I think we learn how to warm up to God. But this was just sort of a way trying to put to words how do we describe the way that people have related to God in Scripture, in history, and, and here's what I came up with. So let me just kind of run through them. The first one is naturalists, loving God out of doors. These are Christians who their hearts are awakened to worship God when they just get outside to try to be inside of a room, to basically close their eyes where there's no natural stimulation, is one of the worst places for them to have a quiet time. Uh, when they're surrounded by all that God has made, when the Proverbs 19.1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God, it's getting outside that wakens up their hearts. They're going to do much better if they get time outside during their lunch break, during their weekends, on their vacations. Then there are the sensates who approach God mainly through the five senses. If you've ever been through an Eastern Orthodox worship service, classic sensate service. You're, you're engaging somebody's sights with elaborate scenery, smell when you've got the incense, you've got the little bells, and so you've got the sound. You're touching things, you're kissing things. It's a very tactile form. And again, a lot of Christians have found that this is a great way for them to connect with the Lord. Traditionalists love God through ritual and symbol. What is boring for some is meaningful for others. Some Christians like the fact that they are having some forms of worship and some forms of prayer that were used a thousand years ago or more. They like routine. Routine doesn't put them to sleep. Routine comforts them. And here's where you're going to see the pathways start to war against each other in the same church because while the traditionalist is comforted that the offering is passed around at 1034 every Sunday morning, all is right with the world, the enthusiast who we're going to get into is hoping that God comes in such a dramatic fashion they won't even get to the offering. It'll just sort of be chaos as something new happens that's never happened before. Um, ascetics love God in solitude and simplicity. Just think of the monk or nun. They need to get away. They tend to be introverted. They live in an interior world. So rather than the sensate that uses the outside world to connect with God or the naturalist, that would use nature. They want to shut the world out. They often go into a room where there's not a clock that you can hear. The, the walls tend to be bared. They don't want to be distracted. They really meet with God in an interior way. Activists, loving God through confrontation. For them, church is more like a pit stop. It's where you get petitions signed. It's where you get volunteers signed up. They feel closest to God when they're fighting battles in God's name, whether it's intercessory prayer campaigns, evangelism, social justice, you name it. Uh, caregivers love God by loving others. When they're meeting needs in God's name, when they're reaching out to others, it's not just sick people. It could be somebody that works on a rescue squad, somebody who's researching a cure for a disease. For them, God becomes most real when they're there reaching others. Enthusiasts are sort of the extroverts amongst us. They love the aspect of mystery. They love celebration, tend to be very relational. They're going to love God, or they're going to pray more if they're with others. Contemplatives are almost the exact opposite. They love God through 
adoration. It's a very emotional relationship. They'll speak of God as their lover, as their beloved. Uh, Like Dr. Houston from Regent College, they might talk about holding hands with God, which would completely mystify an intellectual. Uh, An intellectual connects with God through concepts. It doesn't mean you're particularly intelligent. It just means your mind has to be engaged before your heart opens up. When you understand new things about God, suddenly you adore Him because you respect Him more understanding those new things. And in a lot of church services that are just touchy-feely, just testimony, just pray on the emotions, the intellectuals in the back just saying, can you give me some data? I mean, can, can you give me something I can sink my teeth into, something that will engage my mind? Because their heart really doesn't begin to open up until their mind has been reached. Now, because there are different learning styles and because we're talking about how God made us differently, I know we grasp this in different ways. So what I have here is a skit that was put together. It was actually at Andy Stanley's church when he went through a series on this. And what he did, it was a brilliant piece of work, I thought, where he created this skit where each person in the skit represents one of these pathways. Uh, so it kind of helps you see it a little bit more. You might recognize yourself. You might recognize someone you know. But it certainly does give us a picture of, of what they're like. So if we can go ahead and play that. With all due respect to Carl, each one is in Scripture. When I have more time in the book, I go through and and point out where they are. They're all seen in the life of Christ and in other places. Uh, But I think you can see, just looking at the skit, probably recognizing people yourself, a one-size-fits-all spirituality isn't going to fit anyone. And it's really what's created a lot of the problem behind the worship wars. We don't relate to God in one way. And so when we see our way threatened or our way never represented, people can get really uptight. But here's here's what I think, why this is so important for the church. If you look at all nine of those, you can't possibly meet all nine people in one 60-minute worship service. Besides, if your need for worship can be met in 60 minutes a week, your need for worship is far too small. This is really a Monday through Saturday approach. How do we create a stream of faith and devotion so that instead of coming on Sunday desperate for our little slice of worship to be defended, we're pooling a week's worth of experiencing God together and helping each other grow? Because just as physical fitness isn't established in one mean workout, I mean, you don't say, I'm going to get in shape by eating a salad and then I'm going to go work out for three hours and now I'm in shape. No, no, physical health is achieved through persistent decisions over time. The same thing is true of spiritual maturity. We gain wisdom, we gain character, we gain hearts of faith as we relate to God on a day-in and day-out basis. And that's why we need to teach each other how to be devoted to being close to the Lord. And and what I'd like to stress is some people might say, well, this seems like the uh, height of selfishness. It's navel-gazing. It's it's being spiritually fed. I I actually think it's the opposite. Let me give an analogy to explain why I think that. Imagine you'd been on a two-day fast. Any of you done that? You know, your stomach has shrunk up. You're you're, you're so hungry. And you're coming to a place expecting to uh, break your fast. You you didn't realize the meal was going to be quite there, so you walk in the room and you can already already smell it. You've got the breads that just smell incredible. You can smell the meats. You see the fruits. You're, you're just starting to salivate. And you're ready to sit down, but it's a huge meeting. Say there's 100 people there. And the host comes up to you and says, look, I'm sorry, one of the servers wasn't able to make it. We, we need your help. Before you eat, would you please help us serve everybody here first? And, and you're, you're desperate. You're so hungry. You just wanted to eat. You can see the food. 
You're running around throwing food on people's plates. Or say, I didn't want any potato. Take the potato. I mean, because you just you want to get through it because you're so hungry, you just want to throw that food down. But let's say you had already broken your fast an hour before, so you weren't even particularly hungry. And you come, and then the host makes that request. I bet you're going to take all the time in the world. Before you sit down, you might even say, can I get anybody's seconds? Can I refill anybody's juice glass? You're able to serve because you're not serving out of hunger. Your needs have been met. You've been fed so you can focus on the hunger of others. And that's a pretty accurate picture of Sunday morning. Those who haven't taken time to be fed throughout the week come to church. The pastor better have just the word they need. The worship leader better have just the mood they're looking for. Whereas some are coming, they've met with the Lord all week and they're they're focused on others, how God might use them. So that Monday through Saturday has a huge impact on the quality and content of Sunday worship. So here's the image I want to leave you with to show you why this is so important to service. It's this question. Where is your Gethsemane? Where is your Gethsemane? If you have an older version of the book, you don't have this chapter. When we rewrote it, we put in another chapter called Where is your Gethsemane? I've been teaching it enough. So if you have an older version of the book and you want to read the chapter, uh, feel free to copy it from someone, email me, and I'll send you. It's not worth it to buy a whole new book. It was just more updated, taking things from cassette tapes to digital downloads and whatnot. It wouldn't be worth the whole chapter. So um, just get that. But you might want to read it if you have an older copy. But here's the image I present. We don't usually talk about Gethsemane except around Easter. I mean, it has such a big part in Passion Week. That's where we usually hear the word Gethsemane. But the reason Gethsemane had such a huge role in Jesus' life during Passion Week is because it had such a huge role in his life prior to the Passion Week. It was one of his favorite places on earth. Consider this, John 18, 1-2. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was an olive grove. That's the Garden of Gethsemane. And he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. It was a very familiar haunt of Jesus. And Luke twenty-two thirty-nine backs this up. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. When we look through the Passion narrative, one thing becomes clear. Jesus was not caught by surprise that he was betrayed. He knew what was going to happen. He knew who was going to betray him. He knew when. He knew the night that he was going to be betrayed. Which means Jesus could choose the place where he got his spiritual batteries charged, so to speak, before he faced the cross. You think about it. He's getting ready for the race of his life. Basically, the, the, the crucifixion, taking the entire weight of the world's sin onto his shoulders. He knows he's going to be tried as no one has ever been tried or ever will be. He's got to get ready. Where does he go? He goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. He could choose where he wanted to be. Where, where did he get his, 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 his direction when he's choosing his disciples? Where did he get his batteries recharged? That's where he's going before the night of his betrayal. And so he knew what was happening, and Judas knew he could find him there because that's where Jesus had been. You couldn't be Jesus' disciple without knowing he really liked to be in the Garden of Gethsemane. In fact, when Jesus ascended, if you look in the book of Acts, uh, once again, 
at Jesus' return to the Garden of Gethsemane. There's another verse, Luke 21, 37. Each day, Jesus was teaching. This is Passion Week. And each evening, he went out to spend the night on the hill called the Mount of Olives. So here's the image I try to give to individuals. Where is your Garden of Gethsemane? Where is that place when you need to hear from God, when you need your spiritual batteries recharged, when you need God's direction and comfort and consolation and inspiration? Do you have a place where you can go where you know you can meet with God and come away having felt like you walked beside Him? Now, for some of you, it might be a garden. For some of you, it might be a library or a small group or an instrument or or another place. But the idea is to cultivate that place when you can have your batteries recharged. Because I believe prayer and mission, in this sense, go hand in hand. When, When I look at the successful Christian life, when I look at the life presented by Christ, the old dichotomy that the monks fought with the laity about the active life or the contemplative life I think is utterly destroyed. I I think that's a false understanding of the Christian life. Because it seems to me the more we truly pray, the more God gives us His vision for the world. He gives us work to do. He has people He wants us to reach. And so then we get involved in the work. And as we get involved in the work, we recognize we need God's touch. We need God's empowerment. We need God's correction. And so that pushes us back into prayer. And then we pray, and God gives us His heart. So we go back into work. And the two complement each other it's not the fact that we focus only on spiritual devotion and we're not focused on serving others i don't believe it's possible to authentically walk with god and not be inspired to some mission on the other hand if you get lost in your mission and you don't reconnect with god then you start to get angry in your mission you start to get bitter in your mission you start to get resentful It's really a a, a two-prong approach for the healthy Christian life that you pray, which leads you into mission, and your mission should lead you into prayer. If we get overbalanced in any one direction, that's where Christians, I think, start to fall. Um, George was just talking to me this afternoon about traveling alone often in anonymous places. And um, some will travel with accountability partners and whatnot, and and we were just talking about that. And here's where I think it's it's so crucial that the balanced life that focuses on devotion to Christ and then is involved in mission, the idea is that you get to the point where you just are, are much less vulnerable to the sin nature that attacks us. And I can know virtually by the level of temptation whether I'm lacking in prayer or lacking in mission. Without a sense of mission... I'm looking, I'm more concerned about petty things. I'm not making myself clear. I told George I'm more of a morning person, and here we are starting at 8. In the ideal day for Gary, and it's going to be different for you, you have a different body clock. If I'm driving to work in Houston, where they have big cars, (laughs) but not big grace, Um, if I am lost in praying for my family, if I am seeking God's will for that day, if I'm lifting up the meetings I'm going to be involved in, if I'm asking God how I can love my wife, his daughter, a little bit more, I'm not noticing the people who drive like jerks and and cut me off and and go off. But if I'm not prayed up, if I'm I'm not prayerful, I'm more easily offended. I'm, I'm more consumed with things that just don't matter. I mean, I can scream at that driver... He doesn't even know I'm there. 
I mean, I'm, I'm in a little car. He's in a big car. He probably didn't even see me. And, and he's off. And, and I think you could look at that with anger. You can look at that at lust. You can look at that with jealousy. You can look at that with ambition. It, it's when we lose that sense of mission and delight that we adore God and we're adored by God, that we have a purpose in God. When those things are there, there, there just aren't as many places for temptation to find its way. But if we get unbalanced in any one, it can often increase temptation. Somebody who's only involved in mission and is not involved in prayer uh, can be in a very dangerous place. So the whole point is not just to be fed, but to be effective. Because I think that's the effective life. Uh, that's the full life that Paul calls us to, a life of adoration and a life of service. We don't choose like the monks. Do we, are we contemplatives or are we actives? They're both together. I, I want to show one more skit that kind of lists these to kind of set them up, and then I've got just three uh, quick points that only take about five minutes, and then we can go into to question and answer. So let's look at one more skit so you can get a better idea of what the pathways are. All right, three quick points, and we'll wrap this up. C.S. Lewis had a line that I just love in this regard. He says this, A man can't always be defending the truth. Sometimes he has to feed on it. A man can't always be defending the truth. Sometimes he has to feed on it. This is from one of the most effective apologists of the 20th century. And I think what made him so effective is that he learned he had to delight in God before he could try to defend God in the public square. So I'm just talking for us to have ministries that flow out of a life of devotion, a life of connecting with God as we try to get others to connect with God. Secondly, I think this calls us to accept who we are. God created us with a certain bent, and it most honors Him as Creator when we worship Him according to that bent. Uh, As Bill Hybels was going through this, he says, when I was reading through Sacred Pathways, and I came up to the chapter on the activist, I just sighed because I knew Gary Thomas was about to describe me. And sure enough, he did. He said, in my ideal, I, in, in my ideal person, I would be this desert father, one of the ascetics, you know, who, who would just go out in the desert and spend all his days. But as I was reading the, the activist, I realized, who am I kidding? I, I want to fly over the desert and tell the church to get off its butt. He said, a desert father would never use the word butt. He said, in fact, a desert father probably doesn't even have a butt. He's been fasting so long, and he goes on and preaches myself better than I can. But, but what he warned about was what he called pathway envy. The church is richer for having people with different bents. We can't be all things to all people. But if we'll let those contemplatives have their time alone, they'll come out and sometimes just blow us away with their insight. Those activists, we need them as irritating as they can be. We need them because there are missions that need to be accomplished that we often get lazy about. Uh, the, the ascetics remind us that it's appropriate to mourn. The enthusiasts remind us that we need to celebrate. We need to come together. So be who God created you to be. You might not be one who can pray two hours continually, but you might be one who doesn't ever go 15 minutes without praying some kind of prayer. Uh, the church needs both. And then finally, I, I really think, kind of in keeping with the title of the series, that in many ways this is the heart of spiritual formation. This is where spiritual formation has to begin, with, with, with this analogy. Have, ever, have you ever noticed that married couples start to look alike 
after several decades of being together. Uh, one of the Ivy League schools decided they wanted to check this out. And what they did is they looked at photographs of couples on their wedding day and then photographs many decades into their marriage. We're talking five or six decades. And they're able to determine with some degree of accuracy that, yes, married couples really do start to bear some resemblance. And so the other study was, why does this happen? And here's what they found out. When you live with somebody for so long, it's just natural that you start to mimic each other's expressions. You just see it and you kind of rub off on each other. And your expressions are like facial bodybuilding. It shapes your face to a certain degree so that you look alike. And uh, th- this is, can be tested in amazing ways. One of my, my best friends growing up was Rob Takamura. He's full-blooded Japanese. He marries this very fair-skinned, red-headed woman named Jill. And, and we were laughing on the day they got married. Yeah, Rob and Jill are going to start to look alike. Ha, ha, ha. Well, it was uncanny when we got a picture from them. We had moved away from Washington and they were both smiling into the camera. You couldn't see their bodies, just their faces. And if you ever wondered what a red-headed, fair-skinned Japanese woman looks like, it, you should see the picture. It was amazing how they do start to look alike. And, and the same thing, I believe, happens when we're in God's presence because He is so beautiful. Because His presence is so dynamic, I don't believe it's possible to look on His face and walk away the same. Because when I see God's purity, I want that purity. When I see God's love, I I want that love. When I see His truth, I don't want to listen to any lies. It's by being in His presence that I'm wrecked to the world, that I don't want to resemble the world. I don't want to look like the world. So rather than focusing on getting rid of the world, I just want to look on God, and that will make me not only long for Him, but it's a transforming presence. And so I don't think it's the end of spiritual formation, but I do think it's the foundation. I think it's where it begins, where we lose the world's grip on us. We gain our thirst to become like God. And then as we get together with Him and the spiritual disciplines and other things are added, then we're shaped spiritually. So here's the thing. What if in Toronto a group of people decided we want to take this seriously? We want to be a people who focus on being devoted to the Lord, who learn how to delight, and then who learn how to serve because of that. What if this became not a safe place for Satan's followers? Because the presence of God is so strong in his believers, he's worried that anybody in Toronto is eventually going to come across one of those Christians and he'll lose them to eternity. I think that's the vision we're given here. And I think because of the promise of the Holy Spirit, uh, we could see it. It happened. Have I talked through question and answer time? We're we're okay? 